Welcome to Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and also huge amateur fan of Victorian novels like the ones we're about to discuss today. I'm delighted to welcome Mary Ann Wright to Old Books with Grace to discuss the delightful, influential, yet today sort of obscure Victorian writer George MacDonald. Marianne Wright, a member of the Bruderhof, lives in southeastern New York with her husband and five children. She has edited two books for Plow, Ani and the Gospel in George MacDonald. Welcome, Marianne, to Old Books with Grace. I'm so excited that you're here to talk George MacDonald with me. Hi. <laughs> so Very happy to be here. Yay. I I'm uh I've been thinking about a George MacDonald episode for a while, so I'm I'm very pleased. Um, but I ask every guest who comes on to get to know you questions. And so the first that I'd like to ask you is what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? And um, accepting George MacDonald, you cannot answer him if you were going to answer him, but um, what do you think? So I'm going to answer, and I don't like um, putting myself down, but a book that I really love is um, the Damarosche trilogy by Elizabeth Good, which is the story of um, the Elliot family. And it's in one of these kind of... Uh, sprawling family novels and that's kind of my uh, favorite comfort read and it also there's a lot of um, humor in there um, I love her portrayals of children and then also a lot of wisdom so that's a book that I'll go back to when I just need to um, kind of read something that will uh, cheer me up and center kind of so that's my answer there I love that trilogy. And I love Elizabeth Gooch, but I, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think anybody writes children as well as she does, actually. I think she is brilliant with how she writes children. Yeah, I, I agree. I always, I especially enjoy her, her scenes with children and then also her characters who love children and how um, she brings that aspect of them alive. And I think that's um, it's always good to go back and, and read that and to kind of be reminded of it, you know, that, that loving children is a special, um, is a special calling that we all have, but you can learn to express it, I guess. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it, uh, it relates to how she thinks about, um, people on a broader scale, the kind of child at the heart of each person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it comes out so beautifully is because she, she's not taking them less seriously than she would take an adult, but nor is she sentimentalizing them and sort of, um, I don't know. It, she does something that I've thought about a lot, but I have yet to put good words to. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, question number two for you is which literary character do you most identify with and why? Hmm. That one is really tricky. <laughs> um, 
because I, I would tend to think of books that I read as a teenager and mm-hmm. then like the type of character identification you do at that age is very different from what I would do now as a you know wife and mother and so forth and I'm trying to think of good examples of that in literature um, and I guess going back to my teenage self, which is kind of easier to do because everything's more simple and fun. I really like uh, the character of Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing. I mm. think she's the kind of archetype of um, people who know their minds and have a good time and then also end up having to learn things about themselves. <laughs> so she's, she's just a fun person and I guess I can go with her. Oh, that's a great answer. I really like how you describe her. Um, and I think that is uh Beatrice is yeah she is fun and she and she does both know her own mind and have to go through a process of discovering uh more about herself um which is a lovely balance especially like for your teenage self to identify with yeah I mean and I think she's obviously like a prototype for Elizabeth Bennett in a lot of ways and and so I think a lot of those things that we all enjoy as in those years um you can see yourselves in them so that that was one that I really enjoyed I love that yeah yep definitely a prototype Elizabeth Bennett I see that for sure so you've edited this wonderful collection of George McDonald's writings from Plow um and before we talk more about his uh his writings and um and what he can give us today what he does give us today I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about his life and his context for folks who have very little familiarity with him because he's one of those authors that can fly under the radar yes that's very true and I think um, most people know about him because of the influence he had on C.S. Lewis, which I would hope to, um, you know, we can get into later. But he yeah. was a Victorian writer and he, um, and I looked for the date he was born, which I cannot find at the moment. But he was, he basically lived during the um, 19th century and he was born in Aberdeenshire in Scotland to a um, small town, but his family was pretty lettered. So he grew up um, with a lot of stories around him and also, um, I think, a, a pretty good education at the local school. And then he got a degree in um, chemistry or in uh, physics or something, and he was going to be a doctor. And then he felt called to the ministry. So he um, trained as a congregationalist minister. His family, at least some of them were Calvinists, and that comes through a lot in his, his books. And he... Um, was assigned a parish in Arundel in East Sussex and lasted there for three years. And then he was asked to step down because um, some of his views were not welcome. He's um, a universalist or, and, and I have to say that with um, some reservations because I think it, it, it's a little more nuanced than that, but sure. he, he believes that, you know, God wants everyone to be redeemed and um, reconciled in the end. And then the other thing which the parish there didn't uh, appreciate was he also felt like that there would be a place in heaven for animals. <laughs> and so he was um, he, he was there for three years and then he um, moved to, uh, I think he tried teaching for a while. He got married to a woman, Louisa Powell, who is one of these people I would just love to have met. And they had 11 children together and um, he then started um paying uh, the family's expenses with by writing. And um, 
that continued for the rest of his life. He was an absolutely pro- prolific um, writer. He wrote uh, novels. He wrote children's stories. He was, as you know, everybody was at that time, uh, prolific. Yes. Um, he's like uh, Trollope or one of those guys who were just yeah, just you know, letters, page after page. Yeah, um, huge correspondence. Um, and uh, their family life was just sounds like um, absolutely amazing, um, chaotic, fun, um, warm, happy family. They staged a lot of amateur theatrics also to raise money. Um, a number of his children had tuberculosis and he also had some kind of lung problem. So they ended up living in Italy for about 20 years, which was actually his most prolific year. So he's very associated with Scotland because he was born there, but actually he only lived his early years there and the rest of his life he lived in England um, and mostly in Italy. And in, uh, both when he, he and his family lived in London in a house which actually subsequently um, was Kelmscott House, which William Morris lived in. So there's oh. some interesting connections there um, right on the Thames and, and both the house in London and then their house, which was called um, Casa Coraggio and House of Courage mm. in Italy, were, you know, kind of centers of literary um, life for people. And he uh, was a very successful novelist in his time and, you know, selling tens, um, tens of thousands of copies of his books and every year a new novel. And these are real doorstop novels. You don't just pick them up and read them in a couple of days. Um, and then in the last years of his life, moved back to England and died the year after their 50th wedding anniversary. And his, his wife had died shortly before him. So they basically went together. So um, the impression you get reading about him is that he was a very good and holy man mm. um, and also a, a great father and um a wonderful friend to many people. And I think that is a little bit of a outlier with many, um, you know, famous authors and so forth that you could compare him with Dickens, whose family life, I mean, he also had a big family and didn't treat his wife so well, you know, and, and, yeah. so on. and, and so McDonald, you know, was exemplary in his personal life as well as, as, you know, uh, um, in his writing. That's right. Um, he he stands out uh, because he is one of those kind of rare figures who who had who achieved enormous success in like he, in his lifetime, and uh, but also had a full life. It wasn't just the writing. It wasn't just the uh, the success around that, but that in fact it was a lot bigger than that for him. And I I loved in your introduction to the. The Gospel and George MacDonald, you talk about how uh, how many literary figures he had connections with, um, and how he he uh, was very good friends with Lady Byron. He uh, was really close to Lewis Carroll, and that the MacDonald children were actually the first who had read uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is so cool. I didn't know that, um, but that he's he really had formed this community. Um, of of writers and literary folk around him and uh that which is amazing so yeah so lewis carroll when when they lived in london he you know he lived in their house and uh, he he lived near their house and he was a very frequent visitor so and he was also in addition to being a author a, a photographer so there's some really beautiful pictures of george mcdonald and his children are taken by lewis carroll 
Um, another person which I didn't write about in the introduction that he was very close to is um, Ruskin. Mm-hmm. And there was Ruskin had this kind of strange um, relationship with a young, very young girl called Rose Latasha. I don't know how you say her last name. Anyways, much, much younger than him, who he had this kind of idealized love affair with. And, and Mac- George MacDonald was kind of the go-between between the two of them. Um, and it's, you know, especially from our vantage point, it really does seem like quite a strange relationship. <laughs> um, but anyways, he, he kind of idealized her as, um, you know, as an ideal woman and, and just kind of, and I think it was in his thirties or forties by then. So, um, and she then died from what I can read. She must've had tuberculosis or something as well. Anyways. So he was involved with her. Um, he did a speaking tour in the U S where he spoke to you know, huge audiences. Um, and Dickens had done a tour in the U S as well. And both of them kind of came for the same reason that the books were being pirated in New York. The, the, first um, pressing would be sent over to New York and then there's public there's you can still see them um, around the docks there's um, printing print houses and they would take apart the books and make facsimiles and print them and the, the authors would get no royalties and so that was part of the reason both of them came over to the U.S. was to see if they could um, step that back a little bit neither of them was successful um, but then another person he met on that tour was Mark Twain which you really wouldn't expect um, to I mean, they, they write in a very different tone, um, but they were, became friends and Mark Twain was having a similar problem with his books being pirated in England. So they were going to co-write a novel so that this could, you know, they mutually be able to protect their copyright on it, which they didn't do. But the next novel that George MacDonald wrote was Sir Gibby. And one of the characters in that book is a black man who had been a slave and he's kind of a mentor to, um, to Gibby, who's the little boy who's, I mean, the, book is his life story but he starts as an orphan boy um and so you can see uh, I think parallels there to Huckleberry Finn but this was like kind of the, the um, seed of this book was this relationship between this lost boy and this man who was also kind of on the run from um you know tr- trying to escape arrest and so forth so that's that's a kind of bizarre side but yes he was you know really in the mix the other um people that he um, was connected with was the pre-Raphaelites. So um, a lot of friendships there. His daughter was um, engaged, one of his daughters was engaged to Edward Hughes, um, who's, um, I, I, I don't remember how these circles connect. Anyways, that particular daughter died. Um, and four of his children died during his lifetime of tuberculosis. And that was his daughter, Josephine. But anyway, so he, he was definitely in the mix um, of you kind of, letters in you know people of letters in the 19th century yeah that's that's so interesting about mark twain yeah because you just would not associate those two together in your mind but that they were friends and working together on projects is fascinating so how did you first find the works of mcdonald um what did you think at the time and tell us a little bit about your journey uh diving deeper Sure. writing. So um, I grew up, so I'm from a family of eight children. I'm second. And both my parents were pretty busy um, in their work. My mom's a family doctor, so she was often gone. And we lived right next door to my grandparents, my dad's parents. And so I spent a lot of time in their house growing up. And um, they were kind of like the platonic ideal of grandparents. So I just <laughs> loved them so much. And there was always, you know, grandma's making 
cakes and cookies and grandpa would read to us we did projects with them and anyways so reading aloud was a big thing in our family and mm. so um one of the books grandpa would read with us was um George MacDonald's children's stories. So that's the uh, princess and Curdie, the princess and the goblins um, and so forth. And he also, he liked to collect books and this was during the 1980s. So um, he would get a book catalog and he'd, uh, we'd help him pour through these things um, looking for George MacDonald books that he hadn't read. And so he, he enjoyed a lot of different things, but even as a child, you could tell this was something that meant something special to him. And then later when I grew up, um, I found on our bookshelf in my house, in our house, um, a little book of excerpts from George MacDonald that he had typed out for my dad around 1981 or 82 as a birthday present. And so I took that and this was probably my late teens. And I just um, started reading it and rereading it. And that was um, a lot of the, what, what my grandfather felt were the George McDonald's most important insights and messages that he collected and, and wanted to hand on to my dad. So, but I didn't, re I hadn't read many George McDonald novels because they're very um, intimidating. Yes. And especially, you know, at, at a younger age. And I also had this impression of this kind of pious and moralistic person. And I, yes. I was that interested in it. And, you know, grandpa would tell me, he's like, you should read it. And I had really happy memories of the children's books, but I don't think like he really encouraged me to read Sir Gibby at one point and I was 12 or 13 and I, I just didn't make it anywhere. Anyways, um, and then when my husband Kent and I were married, so I was 31, um, so had probably grown up by then. And we, um, the first couple of years of our marriage, we read a lot together and we read through a lot of George MacDonald books together. And I don't really know why. I think I had this little book because I kind of stole it from my dad that grandpa had friended. And of course, my grandfather passed away by then. So this was kind of a memento of him that I really loved. And so from that, so Kent hadn't read much George MacDonald either. And so we just started to read together and it, it meant a lot to us. And then Plough was doing this series of books, um, the gospel and great writers. So the idea of, you know, the gospel message distilled in the writing of, you know, there's um, George Manley Hopkins, Dostoevsky and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I volunteered to edit the George MacDonald, uh, the George MacDonald volume, which I did. And so to do that, of course, I read through all his um, published works. Mm -hmm. And so that was my, and then I, um, you know, took, um, as I read, just marked passages that I kind of jumped out at me. And I've met since then a lot of people who really love George MacDonald's writings. And um, almost everybody has their little collection of things because you'll be reading through and it's, you know, page after page of, um, I actually really enjoy the stories, but but some of it's quite slow moving. And then suddenly you'll hit a sentence or, or a, a passage that just knocks you over. And, and I think that's what people, the his his manner of um being able to you know talk right to the human condition and yeah. you know with a but with a really uncompromising gospel message and um that's why he you know <laughs> is worth reading and I, that's why again um you know for c.s lewis as a new convert um this was his kind of framework that he you know um that his Christianity uh, was born in Chesterton as well was somebody who really, um, you know, found, he, he says that, um, 
The Princess and the Goblins, he said, is a book that made a difference to my whole existence. And then he he wrote a few times why that is, why he felt it feels like it's so important. And then McDonald's also been very influential on um, fantasy writers with his different fantasy work. So obviously Tolkien, um, C.S. Lewis, but then the whole kind of genre that went from there, mm-hmm. to, you know, Madeline Engel or um, anyways, all ch- children's fantasy work. Um, a lot of people feel like his his fantasy works were kind of the um, the originals of that. Yeah, you you actually anticipate my next question, which is uh, how well loved he was by really great writers like Chesterton or Lewis or W. H. Auden. Um, yet his novels aren't aren't really well read today. Um, and and there's this sort of paradox in uh, in his writings, especially his novels, that Lewis expresses because Lewis says um, McDonald has no place in literature's first rank, perhaps not even in its second. But he also says nowhere else outside the New Testament have I found terror and comfort so intertwined. And he sees. Um, and, and McDonald, he he calls his master. Um, that and and actually, for listeners, if you've uh, read his The Great Divorce, you've met McDonald in a uh, in an adapted literary form. He's the Scottish spirit who is uh, the guide through um, through the sort of beginnings of of heaven in that novel, and so. Uh, there's this interesting uh, mix when you read McDonald where you're like, is he's not necessarily as skilled of a writer at times as some other of his contemporaries, but his insights are so profound and powerful. Um, and so why do you think now that you've, you've read so much of his novels and encountered so much of his wisdom and and what's nice about your book too is that it also collects things from his sermons so it's all these different genres um why should more people follow lewis and chesterton and those guys and read mcdonald today what what does he have to give to us who aren't victorians who aren't in his in his social circle who maybe are uh like you mentioned these are large books they are bricks um what's waiting for us in those novels? Yes. So like I said, I was 31 before I, um, you know, dared to pull one of these books down the shelf and start reading it. And, 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 and I'm somebody who enjoys a good big novel. So I think, you know, that's part of it, but, you know, lucky you, if you don't, a lot of people have made books of extract. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis did. I did. There's others out there. Um, where you can you can taste it, you're gonna taste the waters and and you know see it. So what I think is important about him is he is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he mm. you know said uh, that that's and people would ask him about his you know literary art and so forth, and he wasn't kind of a self conscious writer in the way that many people you know might be, but he said I'm I'm here I'm serving my master, and so that's my first calling and the books are kind of a means to do that. And I think was his kind of second choice to do that because he wasn't successful as a preacher. Um, But yes, um, I'm just looking for, okay, so this is Chesterton, um, similar to C.S. Lewis saying, it's just talking about a book called The Marquis of Lossy, which is one of the 
Scottish novels. He says, the story, as I have said, is not told with anything like the full measure of Dr. MacDonald's art. It is difficult to lay one's finger on a single scene, which is quite properly proportioned, which has not too much philosophy and too little psychology. Yet the whole story is as vivid and as tense as a detective story. We read it with a profound sense of something greatly exciting us and we cannot tell what it is. Um, and I think, you know, so it's very easy and I will do it too to say, you know, a lot of the novels as novels are really poor and then it's impossible not to just follow that up to say, but they're really great. And so I got to, you know, um, there's a lot of variety in them. So a number of the novels are set in Scotland, which he loved, um, especially in um, coastal fishing villages. And um, he clearly you know, love that part of the world. But then there's a lot of novels which are also set in England. And then there's the children's stories. And there's quite a different, um, there's real gothic elements, especially in some of the Scottish novels where you have like beautiful women chained up in, you know, stone towers and stuff and people having to come up and, uh, and save them. Or, and then their corpses discovered, you know, 10 years later, really kind of shocking things. Um, you know, there's love stories, there's adventures, there's really homely um you know, scenes of families. There's, um, he he really loved a love story. And I think that's also a beautiful thing about his, you know, writing and probably also says a lot about his marriage is that he delights in the love between a man and a woman and the ennobling, um, the how that could be ennobling and also then, you know, the, the fruitfulness of a marriage and, and, and families. <clears throat> so you get, you, uh, and travel writing is something else he did, um, not travel through Europe, kind of like grand tour type of stuff. Um, so, you know, they're, they're really enjoyable books to read. And there are these people have, you know, with, with um, great goodwill have kind of made abridged uh, versions of them. And also some of the books, the ones set in Scotland, have a Scotch dialect in them, a Scots dialect in them which can be a little intimidating and try to kind of smooth it all out. And I really think, you know, if you're going to read it, you should just, you should read the books as he wrote them. I was going to ask you about the abridged versions because, okay. So uh, for folks curious and wondering uh, about, you know, Oh, I'm going to stop listening and go acquire a George McDonald. And here's something kind of tricky is that a lot of the copies readily available are abridged versions, which is mostly what I've read them in because the, the originals can be kind of hard to find. Um, do you have like recommendations about how to do any insight about how to navigate the, that kind of trickiness of reading George McDonald in modernity? Right. So the novels that are set in England don't have any dialect in them. And those tend to be more kind of like the family kind of scenes and so forth. And the ones set in Scotland have a bit of a wilder, wilder edge. It seems like to me also there's the types of characters they have, like kind of, um, you know, I guess it was the day of the last days of the kind of clan, clan life and so forth. So kind of like the last representatives of, of kind of Highland clans and so forth. Um, you know, fishermen going out and risking their lives and so forth. And, and the ones that are set in England have a much more kind of domestic tone to them. Um, I mean, as far as finding the books, there is some publishing house, and I think it's in England, has reissued them all in fairly decent, um, fairly decent edition. So you certainly can find them. And, and you know, 
to me, similar with it, like Shakespeare, I feel the same way about it. Like people will be like stories from Shakespeare. I'm like, why would you want to do that? Like the stories aren't even that great. Like you want to read Shakespeare. And so the same to me with George MacDonald. Like if you're going to read it, like, like the gems are hidden, you know, within it. And, and much like life, you sometimes have to do a bit of plotting and then you'll hit something that will just, like I said, stop you in your tracks and, um, you know, give a new, and, and this is something that both, um, well, Chesterton and Auden and C.S. Lewis, you know, mentioned about him is this incredible originality of um, of his mind um, and ability to kind of crystallize ideas. Um, so and the characters are really recognizable and that, you know, internal struggles that, you know, the characters go through and, and, and yet, so then when they come to a, a point where they're able to, you know, um, rise above themselves and and do the thing that they should do um, has a, a really kind of crystallizing effect. Um, so um, you, you don't want to kind of have to skip, have skipped over that to get, you, yeah. you need to walk with them and through it. I, I, I appreciate I, that. And I like, I'm, I didn't know that there was a publishing house in England that has issued copies. And I will certainly be looking into that. But um, I, I, I think you're right that, with McDonald, there is a process. And if you're cutting out process, that's going to end up stripping some value in the long run from these like gems that he has. And I love that you quote in the intro, uh, Chesterton, who writes that when you read McDonald, it's kind of like collecting jewels scattered in a rather irregular setting, <laughs> which right. I thought was great. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, I like also the comparison to Shakespeare that um, you're not, you're not reading MacDonald for plot. You're not reading Shakespeare for plot. The plot is what gives birth to more beautiful things. Um, Right. But then, then again, always like having said that and and like what I read from Chesterton is like, yet the stories are exciting. Like, mm. will they live? Will they not live? Will the couple get together? Like, who, you know, what's the point of writing a novel? Right. If it's not part of it too, but yeah. (laughs) So, um, I mean, the other really um, majestic works he wrote though, not novels, is a series called Unspoken Sermons, Unspoken because he didn't have a pulpit to preach them from. Um, but I cannot recommend these enough. They are just so filled with insight and wisdom. And I want to just read this. You read the beginning of this, um, what C.S. Lewis wrote about what he sees as the value of McDonald's writing. Um, he says, I dare not say he is never in error, but speak plainly. I, hard, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continuously close to the spirit of Christ himself. Hence, his Christ-like union of tenderness and severity, nowhere else outside the New Testament have I found terror and comfort so intertwined. Uh, And that's a really good description of it. He, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I was, uh, before we started talking, I was skimming through the parts I'd picked out for this uh, book that I edited. And um, you get that again and again. It's really uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, that um, is a famous, one of his famous lines is that God is, is easy to please but hard to satisfy and that God loves us and you know will be pleased with any effort we make but to to truly satisfy you know the demands of discipleship you have to go you know very far against your human nature um to me one of the big themes in George MacDonald that's been really important to me in George MacDonald which comes 
in almost every page he writes is obedience being the key to discipleship. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, if you think about, you know, Christ called his disciples to follow him. And, and that means that in our daily life, um, you know, to follow the will and the, the teachings and the commandments of Jesus, that's what we as Christians need to do. And, and um, there's a formulation of it, which it's really, I, I find really helpful. He says, what in the heart we call faith in the mind, we call obedience. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, you can't have faith unless you're all, you, your faith means nothing unless you're also active in obedience. And then he'll say, what, um, what is the will of God? He's like, everybody in their heart knows the next thing they need to do, whether it be to sweep a room or to ask for forgiveness for somebody. And that is the will of God. It's that next thing that God is calling you to do. And it makes it really simple um, because we all know in our heart, like what's that thing that perhaps we don't really want to do, or maybe that we do want to do to pick up our, you know, our child and, and kiss them. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's to have a conversation that's, you know, embarrassing or humiliating because of something that you've done wrong, but that, you know, that's as simple as it is that the will of God is that you do that thing. Mm. So for me personally, that's where, um, that's been probably the insight that has, you know, meant the most to me just on kind of a practical, um, kind of practical way of like, how do you live? Like, what what do you do, you know, from day to day to live out your, your faith? Mm. Um, I love that. Um, because when I read McDonald, um, I think earlier you mentioned how how much love comes through in his writings and how often that's related to family life and marriage, but also um, in other ways as well. And, uh, and that it's, it's both this love as in your truest core identity as beloved child of God and love as in the active call of obedience um, to the people around you and to uh, th- that in that which is in your heart, um, that it's both of those two things sort of inseparably held together in his writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that I th- that puts him in my mind in a category with somebody like um, the medieval writer Julian of Norwich, um, mm-hmm. or with Elizabeth Gooch, who we mentioned earlier. This. Uh, what sometimes gets categorized, and I think in a good way, but in, in a way that um, can be muddying the waters sometimes as like sort of a mystical, um, a mystical component of love. And I, I do see him as a mystic, which uh, is interesting to see like a novelist as a mystic, because those two forms of writing seem very different to each other. But um, I really, I really like what you're saying about obedience. And I think that's, oh, it's a, it's both hard and easy all at once. Like you're seeing it and you go, well, that seems straightforward. And also how, uh, how hard and how tricky and how interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just to read this from C.S. Lewis again, his Christ-like union of tenderness and severity. And I really think that sums it up uh, really well. I mean, the other big theme in his novels, he was a Victorian, you know, he experienced a lot of deaths in his family, um, his death. And, Mm. but um, but death as as the doorway to resurrection, and and that's the other thing. If anybody, you know, is struggling with you know the death of somebody they love, or, or you know, thinking about that, I you know, I really encourage you to read 
um, George McDonald because this was something he experienced, you know, um, we all experienced death. And of course, you know, that hasn't changed in the last uh, 150 years or so. Um, but, you know, to have four of his grown children, you know, wither and die in front of him from tuberculosis. Um, his oldest daughter was kind of the, the jewel of his heart, you know, died at 22 or 23. And, and mm. anyways, um, the novel that I would recommend, if that is what you would like to um for him to instruct you on is, um, and now I've forgotten the title of it. It's set. Oh dear. I will come to this. (laughs) (laughs) It is one, it's one of the Scottish novels and it is, um, let me see. Um, Anyways, I will I will remember the name in a minute. Yes, it will anyway, come so to he me. he has this just just unbelievable scene where there's two believing young men and two worldly and um, shallow young women, and they're caught in a um, flash flood, and they have a conversation that goes on for quite a few pages about death and how um, and and it's it's absolutely unforgettable once you've read it um, and his children's book in the back of the Northwoods. I also grew up with my mom. I was telling you, it was one of her favorite memories. It was her mom reading this book to us and she read it to us. And I loved it. It's a story of this little boy and um, he's, you know, a London taxi driver and the horses and so forth. And then I reread it as an adult. And the book is, is a book about death. That's really the theme of it. And North Wind, who's the character in the book, I think represents death. And eventually this little child dies. And so it, it's kind of a, a bizarre book for to be a book for children if you read it as an adult. And I even have a difficult time reading it to my children. Um, so, so it's a meditation on on death. And yet it is an incredibly hopeful and happy book. And the other thing I should say about George McDonald's, um, he's really funny. And, um, you know, there, there's scenes that are, are just in, in a kind of the way that like a scene in Dickens can be funny, just mm-hmm. not... Um, you know, one-liners or something, but the whole tone of the scene is is just one of humor and um, just delight in like human, um, <laughs> you know, eccentricities of human beings and stuff. <laughs> so that's the other thing. Like, like it's not all serious. There's there's really you know there's people who are are just comical, um, and and so there's aspects of that in, in the back of the North Wind too. But that. That was a preoccupation of his as well, was mm. um, what does it mean to die? And, you know, how should we approach death? A, a good life, a good death. So, yeah, and something. It, it, I think uh, what I appreciate deeply about th- those two interests together and those two themes in his writings is that as you as you brought up with his biographical information, he's not writing uh, cheaply about this. And it reads the, the heavy wisdom of, of his own life comes through in these little, in these gems and in these thoughts that you encounter in the pages. Um, Sometimes when, when spiritual, well-meaning spiritual writers write about these kinds of really difficult topics, um, it can be moralizing and uh, and not 
uh, you don't feel the weight of of someone's life in them, but you really can feel that weight in McDonald's, yeah. and and none of it comes cheap, which I so deeply appreciate. Right, and you know, I mentioned Dickens. So, by the way, the novel I was referring to is called What's Mine's Mine. Um, so that's it, it's um, as they are these four young people are together, and there's you know great fear for their lives, and, and the young men are kind of like, oh, if we die, we die, you know. And the girls like, no, no, you know, we don't want to die. We're not ready. And and the young men are like, well, you know, if God wants you to die now, what better thing? Like, do you think it would be better if you didn't? You know, <laughs> and and it, it it's so kind of matter of fact. <laughs> um, and yet you can identify so well with these girls who are just scared to death of drowning and, you know, they, they, they feel unprepared for it. And, and, the, you know, the, so it, it, it's, it's kind of unexpected. It's not facile. And um, what I started to say about Dickens is you have a certain amount of sentimentality yes. in his treatment of death, which, you know, I think also, you know, of course there's sentiment, you know, a child dies and so forth. Yeah. Um, you do not get sentimentality with George MacDonald. I just did it, um, not a whiff of it. It's very much um, human life as, you know, people experience it who are not necessarily saints, who mostly aren't saints, who, you know, come with a lot of, um, you, you know, stories of, you know, difficulty and so forth um, and are very recognizable in their fears um, and so forth. So, yeah, the, the other, um, I mean, in, in his books, quite a few young people die. And, I, you know, he would see that with tuberculosis being a, a killer, I guess, of, you know, the, um, people who weren't dying of diseases of poverty would die of tuberculosis as young. I mean, people who, you know, weren't poor um, at, at a young age. So, and I think, too, your point about his lack of sentimentality is really um, interesting, given that he is a Victorian novelist, and that is one of the hallmarks of the Victorian novel, is this, uh, is that there's a lot of sentimentality in it. Um, but I, I think that's what also makes him uncomfortable to read sometimes, is that sentimentality is sort of a, it's more comfortable sometimes when you're reading something that has that, uh, and he doesn't give his, his readers that. Um, and that, that is a good thing that makes, that makes you wrestle. Um, so it's, it's an interesting experience. Um, before we're, we're getting closer to the end of, of our time together, but I did want to make sure to ask you, um, what of his books are your favorites? Like what for you are the cannot miss? You must read this. So the one that means a lot to me, it's partly because it was the first one that Kent and I read together. It's called Malcolm. And it's the boy of a the story of an Irish fisherman growing up. Um, and it's a terrifically fun story. Um, but the the main character is this person of kind of like improbable amount of integrity. And yet he's, he is very persuasive as a character. Um, so our second son is Malcolm. And Aww. so that's that we especially love. Um, also because, like I said, we read it together. It was the first one we read together. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, like, I don't really like ha having a favorite. Um, I love the children's stories. The Princess and the Goblins is one that, you know, you really just have to read. And it's, again, one of these stories when we read it recently aloud to our family and the kids really enjoyed the story. It's an adventure story and the, uh, the Princess Irene is, you know, saved from the goblins by this little 
um, minor boy called Curdy. But then as Kent was reading it aloud for kids, I'm just like, goodness gracious, this is heavy handed because it's a story about faith and, how, you know, overcoming sin and sin within yourself. And, and I asked our older child, I was like, did you see, do you realize what this um, chapter was about? And he's like, yeah, they were, you know, following a string through the mountain so they'd get trapped under the mountain. And the fairy godmother of the princess who represents God in an interesting kind of way because, you know, she's the fairy godmother anyways. And she has sent a, a string that leads them out through the dark tunnels and they have to hold on to it in order to get out. And if they let go and think they see a better way, they get lost. And if they don't think that it's going to, you know, it goes across a stream or something and they don't want to rely on it. And, and, you know, it's about, you know, faith. And it just couldn't, like, <laughs> couldn't be more obvious but for a child it's a children's story mm. and so I it, it's it really such a great book on so many different levels but as an adult you will and I agree you know it, it's it's good it's it's not preachy but it's pretty obvious yeah. that's a fun one the light princess is another of his children's stories which is just funny but then at the end, like it's a story one. of a sacrificial death mm. um and what that means to to love somebody enough to die for them um there's a book which basically nothing happens in called Paul Faber Surgeon that has just so much, um, so much in it. When I, I read it, I was completely bowled over. Um, and there's a kind of set of novels that um, built around a couple of characters, Scottish characters, so Robert Falconer, Alec Forbes, um, that they, they um, come with Donald Grant and Sir Gibby. So all the characters from these novels kind of come into each other's novels. And those are all just um, really, uh, uh, as you go through them, you'll continue to be surprised. And, um, you know, the, the story elements that come out, but also the um, what the characters go through as people in their, you know, development um, during the course of this story. So uh, depending on what, you know, what time of year it is or how I'm feeling, there's a lot of different ones that I, I really love. And I should say again, that unspoken sermons are, um, you know, just you pick them up and read a few pages and there's really a lot in there. So that's great. Um, well, where can, uh, if they are interested in, in finding out uh, more about what you're up to, where can they find you online? I'm on Twitter as Mayor Wright, M-A-I-R-W-R-I-G-H-T. And I um, have a group substack with two other women who are members of the Bruderhof communities as I am. And um, that's the community that publishes Plow Quarterly and also Plow Books. And it's called Seasons of Community Living. And so we talk what it's, we just tell what it's like to live as women in this um, community. We're going to post next week about our community elementary schools and um, our kind of philosophy of education. So those are the two places. And you can read um, the gospel of George MacDonald, where I also write a, a certain amount about myself in the introduction, but more importantly, um, read the rest of the book. And I, I think if you need an endorsement for George MacDonald, I put in the end of the book, um, 
different places where Chesterton and C.S. Lewis talked about him and why he was important. And once you've read those 20 or 30 pages, you'll really feel stupid if you don't go back and read George <laughs> MacDonald because they spare no superlative in telling you how great he is. I was actually, um, so I, when I was reading through, um, paging through the book this morning, it's, it's uh, the book of excerpts, um, George C.S. Lewis says somewhere, he's like, I don't think I ever wrote a book where I didn't quote from him. And if you spend any time, amount of time with George MacDonald, you'll find out that this is very, very literally true. I mean, he's, he's not just saying that. So um, this is from George MacDonald, is from one of his novels. Um, he's like, if there is such a God, he knows what pain, pain I bear. Even if there be no such God, it will be grand to be a disciple of such a man to do as he says, think as he thought, perhaps come to feel as he feels. And I think the famous um, scene in in the silver chair where this Pedalgum gives a speech, mm. which I see a lot of people like to quote, it's like, even if there is no Narnia, you know, I still want to be a Narnian. And, and so he's, he, as the more time you spend with both of them, you're like, yeah, he really is cribbing a lot of his thoughts <laughs> straight out of George MacDonald. So again, if you love, you know, C.S. Lewis, and I think as, you know, most people have, have, have learned so much from him, um, you, you can just take one more step backwards and um, read George MacDonald. That's right. That's right. I love that. Um and you're you're so right. I had not thought about that scene with Puddle Glum in direct relation, but yeah, that is straight lifted. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I say, you'll you'll just start to be like, you know, because the first time I read where he said that, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, and then you're like, nope, he really had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Marianne, for coming yeah, on. Yeah, this was and wonderful. Talking. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. Thank you. That was great. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and you can find me online on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. You can also check out my Substack newsletter, which is a mon- once a month little uh, treat of various medieval randomness and delights and uh, information on what I've been up to. And that's at Grace Hammond, H A M M A N. .substack.com. I'd love to chat with you in any of those locations. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't put in a plug for my brand new book coming out in a month, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. Um, you can check that out anywhere where books are sold. Thanks again for listening. 